The phrase existential crisis comes to mind. And it feels like that's where a lot of our clients are. That's where the industry is. This is High Stakes from Gerard Inc. I'm David Schifrin with Gerard Inc. The conversation that follows is between David Gerard, co-founder of the firm and the chairman of the Gerard Executive Committee, and Teresa Hicks, vice president and deputy lead of our national health systems practice. Teresa and David help guide the issues and advocacy work that we do here at Gerard. Part of that work includes helping provider organizations navigate and respond to the pressure and scrutiny they face from different angles, whether the public, the media, regulators, lawmakers. Here, David and Teresa lay a foundation of what they're seeing today and how it compares to the past, and then talk through key issues that we're tracking because we see them crop up again and again. Those include questioning the tax-exempt status of not-for-profit hospitals, providers' billing practices and the cost of care, the importance of building relationships with payers, and questions about the need for and appropriateness of consolidation. Please be sure not just to listen to this episode of High Stakes, but also subscribe to the podcast on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. And while you're there, please leave a rating and a review so others can find us. I'm sitting here with my friend, Teresa Hicks, who has spent her career both as a reporter and inside the halls of healthcare, thinking about this industry. And she's joining me around the table who has spent my career as a reporter and on the inside of healthcare, thinking about the industry and the, and the challenges it faces. And I don't think either of us, Teresa, have, I don't know, experienced a time when the providers of care have faced such incredible scrutiny. Now, I know we're in, in this moment of societal distrust and misinformation and, and malaise, and every organization institution is getting caught up in the, in the fervor of this. And getting wounded and damaged by it. But in the 30 years that I've been working, hospitals and healthcare have been the most trusted institutions. They have been the pillars and doctors and nurses, for sure, and everyone who wears white coats and serves. But I've never seen a time uh, quite like this when even some of the foundational elements have uh, really have been questioned like this. I don't know, what do you think? The phrase existential crisis comes to mind. And it feels like that's where a lot of our clients are. That's where the industry is. It's a moment of definition of, of who are we as healthcare providers? What role do we play within uh, the system of healthcare and health? Because it's a broader picture than just the care that gets delivered. But I think our, what we see health systems grappling with are some of these existential questions on a whole different level. When we think about the disruptors that are coming into the market, when we think about the pressures um, that our clients are feeling, and they're not unfamiliar pressures, right? We've always grappled with financial stability. We've always grappled with uh, what should our service offering profile look like in the community. But the stakes just feel like they're so much higher in this moment because of all of the other things that are going on within society, the pressure that inflation puts on the whole picture, the pressure of some of the just the volatility and just the way that people are talking to each other, the way that they're treating each other. You know, we've seen mm-hmm. headlines about incivility and rudeness, and, and people just feel like across the board they're losing patience. And I feel like some of the creativity and problem solving begins to be compromised when people are under this much pressure. It's true. And I love your phrase, existential. And we're both word people. 
Right. And we've been in healthcare for a long time, so we know hyperbolic language is right. like part and parcel of our industry. And everything is unprecedented right. in the first time. There's never thing, anything done like this before. And yet, it feels true. Now, if it feels like existential, meaning are we going to continue to exist as an organization or do the, the fundamental things that we've done is really in question. I wonder if healthcare itself is being redefined. What is it? What does it mean to be a healthcare provider now that everyone is? And if healthcare is education and transportation and housing and access and literacy, where does it end and where does it begin? And what does it mean for these people who have buildings and surgical suites and, and gloves that they have to buy and patients that they have to see? Well, and I think we've been talking about transformation for for decades, right? And we've been talking about value-based care for a long time, having one foot on the dock and one foot in the boat. And the I think the imagery there implies sort of immediacy, like the action, the transition is mm-hmm. imminent. Mm-hmm. But h- how long ago was MSSP and this sort of ACO value-based concept introduced? It's been more than a decade ago. And we still haven't made that that transition, but there are other transitions that are happening whether we're ready for them or not with other disruptors like Amazon and CVS coming into the marketplace with the yeah. payers becoming providers, this pay vitor trend. And so I think that your traditional hospital systems and healthcare providers as we have known them for decades are, are finding themselves facing different kinds of transformational challenge than I think they thought they were prepared for a decade ago. Agree, and I, and I think the pandemic accelerated this and the cost of care. We spend $4.2 trillion a year. Half of it goes to providers of care, right? And when we, when we look at the politically oriented polls, thinking, talking about what are the issues that people have on their mind, the cost of care, the cost of health care continues to be like high on the list, inflation and some other things uh, as well which makes it a political issue. And one thing that has really struck me about this last season that we've been in is that it's been a, it's been a bipartisan issue, whether you're on the left or the right, sort of wherever you come from the political spectrum, digging into health care and health care providers, I don't know, it's, it's seen as a positive. It's seen as something that there's political permission to do, I don't know, which uh, should get everyone's attention. It, yeah, I agree. And, and I think it's I, I sometimes can be of two minds about that because as a patient, as a citizen of this country, thinking about the moment being ripe for change and thinking about bipartisan movement, can we work together on something, that's encouraging. But as someone who represents providers and is in the trenches with them, thinking about what is that change actually going to look like? What does it mean for us and our ability to continue to care for our communities in the way that we know how to do best? It's dangerous because a lot of the voices that are at the table, some of them are angry voices, Mm -hmm. right? A lot of those voices at the table maybe don't have the same priorities in mind. Not the best interest of the healthcare provision? Imagine imagine that, right? But I think if you you think like a physician who has the best interest of the patient at heart, I think you can look at that conversation and scratch your head a little bit thinking a a lot of that rhetoric sounds good, right? It sounds like maybe it would be beneficial for patients. But when you think about implementing it, the disruption that would have to take place to overhaul the entire system, overhaul the way that we pay for healthcare completely, increase the availability of charity care, right? When you think about actually how that plays out in real life, the pain to get from here to there, even if we agree on what there is, 
that transition and transformation is going to involve a lot of disruption in where the facilities are, which facilities are open or closed, what service lines can be offered in a community, because you can't just spring change on an, an industry like that without having a roadmap for how to get to that desired end state. And one of the challenges, I think, is in translation, that people have a sense, almost a philosophical sense, of what healthcare should be. It's like what education should be. This is the way healthcare should be delivered. This is the way charity care ought to be. And so they, so there's a, a, a number of assumptions that are brought to the table, but then the, the solutions that follow those assumptions do not reflect an appreciation of this Byzantine, Rube Goldberg approach that we have to paying for care. And it becomes a clash instead of a solution oriented discussion. And it gets into some very specific issues. Teresa, could you walk through some of the things, the specific things that hospitals are dealing with that all follow under this umbrella? Sure. Yeah. We've mentioned charity care. And I think that that's making a lot of headlines. And it's something that is, I think, a necessary an important part of this national conversation. And it ties into a lot of other aspects of the way that we pay for healthcare and who pays for it and how. And so thinking about the way that health systems and hospitals and providers are billing patients and the amount that's mm-hmm. on that bill, the cost uh, yes. of care, they're grappling with that. And that leads to this broader more existential question, especially for our not-for-profit providers that we work with, where their tax-exempt status itself is being called into question. And really, at risk of saying the word unprecedented, (laughs) it's really an unprecedented way. Their tax exemption uh, is being challenged, and it's being challenged on terms that are maybe not terms that everybody agrees on is like the playing field for this conversation, right? And so there are a lot of voices that want to equate the value of your tax breaks with the value of the charity care that you provide. And that is a vastly oversimplified form of that equation, right? But it's something that the public can understand very easily. Policymakers can hold on to that. It's a great platform to talk about, right? But again, when it comes to actual practice, does it make sense? It means great emotional language, charity right. care, being a charitable organization, getting in a position where you don't have to pay taxes. There's great emotional heft if you're a political thinker to bringing yourselves to one conclusion or another or activating supporters and but it doesn't reflect the true hard work the, of how we pay for health care today. And we can talk about the, the model being broken and the money's not working the way they're supposed to, but we use them anyway to jury-rig the system so we continue to provide care. It's a hard story to tell. It is, and the, there's not a lot of empathy for the, the business of health care or the elements that these leaders are trying to balance. But ultimately, if you're if you're running a health system, you want to be able to care for your community. And that means being able to care for individual people, right? And charity care is part of that. Making care affordable is part of that. Improving the health of the community is part of that when, you, when it comes to population health. But how do you balance that with your need to remain solvent? And the, the phrase, there's no mission without margin, is true It's a little tired. Like, people are tired of hearing that. It doesn't make a great argument anymore, but it doesn't make it any less true. And so I think when we think about what's keeping these executives up at night, it's that. It's how do I balance margin with mission? How do I serve my community in a fair way 
without going bankrupt and having to close facilities. That's not good for patients either. It's really tough. You can talk about how tight uh, margins are, but if you're driving past the hospital with the big brand, you see the cranes and the buildings going up, and there's a little disconnect right between what is sometimes said and what the optics are. And, but sometimes there's not, a, there's not a conversation happening at all. So the cranes and other things exist yeah. in a vacuum. We run surveys all the time in states asking questions about community benefit because it's important to the reputational value of our organizations and leveraging their political strength. Where We find more and more that only half of residents think these hospitals are delivering like true community benefit, that they're bringing value that's worthy of their tax exemption, mm-hmm. for example. That surprises on one side, given the media coverage that we've seen, but on on the other side, these brands have been in these communities for 100 years, and only half of the folks think they're getting value, they're a true community benefit from these organizations. Seems to be a, a lost opportunity there, something more to do. Agreed. And I think another interesting question to ask would be, how do you know if your hospital or health system is providing adequate community benefit, mm-hmm. right? Because these the Marcom teams spend a lot of time and resources building these beautifully designed and articulately written community benefit reports. How many people really do you think read those reports? And, and even if they did, would it land, right? I think it's important to recognize when you ask the public a question like that, they're drawing from a very limited pool of data and experience, and a lot of it is mm-hmm. their own experience. We, we did a survey with a client last year, and we were talking about patient preference and what drives patient decision-making and things like that, and we asked them, what factors do you care about when you're choosing a provider? And predictably, cost was there, quality was way up there, right? And then we ask that next question of how do you know if a provider delivers good quality care? The thing that really they they leaned on the most was their own experience. They said, I know if a provider delivers good quality care by my own experience. That, That is equating patient experience with care quality. And I think the same can be true for the way that communities and people and patients experience the cost of care and the value that the provider delivers mm-hmm. in the community. I know if they're delivering adequate community benefit based on my experience, what I experience them doing with me and to me and for me, and what I see them doing with my family members and my friends, right? And a lot of that is what shows up on the bill or the conversation that they have with the call center when they go to pay their bill or they have an issue with their bill. There's a lot riding on some of those conversations, I think. It's, and, it's, and you said it's them and their family and their immediate community. All right, this small circle that, that even though trust is being broken in so many places, this is a go-to foundational place where people feel like they still can trust what's being said and act on it. And if nothing else will act on this, it's hugely important. And so into this vacuum then, can come real threats to an organization. Unless there's an appreciation of what it costs and why these prices are the way they are, we see other actors and lawmakers acting in that vacuum. Charity care is certainly one of these issues. We've seen AGs and others begin to look closely at exactly what these standards are and what are reflected. But what are some of the other issues that our organizations are facing out there? When we talk about these executives trying to balance how do I serve my community adequately without going bankrupt and still have a margin, there are a lot of things that they 
need to do, that they must do in order to adapt in these new environments. So consolidation is one of them. Consolidation mm. is absolutely a must in a lot of cases for healthcare providers, especially for independent hospitals or rural hospitals or rural systems. If you look at the factors that they're contending with right now, it is truly a no-win situation, right? So consolidation is the only answer to their continued existence. But all the way up and down the chain, consolidation is getting a lot of scrutiny. And in some cases, rightfully so. Consolidation is not always a good thing. It's not a panacea. But in a lot of cases, it's necessary. And we see our clients a lot of times grappling with a lot of different facets of the sort of persuasive conversations that have to take place with your community, with your business leaders, with your lawmakers around consolidation. And those are really difficult conversations to have. They're difficult because the issue can be extreme. On one side, because of consolidation, a clinic or a hospital can stay open, that ER continue to exist. On the other side, prices can double. And sometimes those things are actually related because we needed a little more money to keep these doors open. So it's not a, it's not an easy sort of political black and white conversation you can have. There has to be nuance to it and, and real engagement. And I think that the conversation about that is not nuanced enough at all. Okay, so big existential questions. And like all these conversations we've been having, they're all about money. They are. It's all about monies and dollar signs and little bags of gold and everything that we do to pay for health care. Whether it's consolidation, it's a kind of money situation, or the billing and cost of care and payer, it all comes back to how are we going to pay for health care and who's going to pay for it and how, how do we know that we're getting the best value for that dollar. So is, is, the, is the right solution for a, a health system of almost any size to... I don't know, Teresa, run a big ad campaign that explains dollars. How do, how do they get started? How do they have this conversation that you've been talking about? Oh, that's so hard to do. That's so hard to do, especially because the, the public's appetite, the public's appetite for that conversation is less than zero. Right? Less than zero. Less than zero, because the public, they have their own financial issues, right? I'm trying to balance my budget. I got to take my car into the shop for repairs. My house needs repair. And so the public has no patience for that. And one of the, one of the hardest things is educating someone about something that they don't want to be educated about. Mm-hmm. And so I do think that there's, and rightfully, there's a deep desire among healthcare leaders to educate the public. They think if only the public understood, if only all these players that are criticizing us understood what we're dealing with, they would see that we're doing the best that we can, that we're trying to do the right thing. And that's probably true. But what do you do when your balance sheet shows that you've made $100 million dollars? last year, even though that's a 1% margin. It's $100 million. It's really hard to have this conversation in any kind of way that gets sympathy. It's really hard. It's really hard. And so I think you have to meet people, match up the right conversation Hmm. with the right recipient for that information, right? And you have to meet them with information that they're willing to accept at, in a, at a time and in a way that they're willing to accept it. And so we encounter this a lot with in payer negotiations. Mm. We do a lot of work with clients who are in negotiations with these large commercial insurance companies. And again, the stakes have never been higher in terms of the outcomes of those negotiations. Our clients have to get a fair deal with these insurance companies or else they do they really do risk closure of facilities or closure of EDs or having to scale back on critical services and but 
These are highly emotional conversations, and they are, in fact, about money. Mm -hmm. That's what these payer negotiations are about, mm -hmm. by necessity, right? And so how do you talk to the public about this? This is something that directly affects them. It affects their access to their physician that they trust. And what we find in those particular settings is there are some audiences that are interested in the nuances of how healthcare gets paid for, right? And the business elements that these leaders are grappling with. Those audiences include employers, particularly your large self-funded employers that, that have uh, they've got their self-funded insurance plans, right? And so it's directly coming out of their pocket. They understand the nuances of the business, and it matters to them how healthcare gets paid for. And so you can have those nuanced conversations about, here's what we're facing in this negotiation, in this landscape. Here's why we need a fair deal. Here's what it would mean if we don't get a fair deal, right? When you're talking to patients, though, you really have to lead with what matters most to them, and what matters most to them is, can I continue to see the doctor that I know and trust? They do not care. Honestly, they don't care whether their health system is being paid fairly because they feel like they're the ones paying for it. Mm -hmm. And to, to some degree they are, right? In a lot of cases, it's the employer or it's the federal government that's really paying most of the tab. But the patient does get a bill. And so they feel like it's the dollars on my bill that I care about, and it's also the face that I'm going to see when I go to the doctor. And so you have to talk to them within that framework, and sometimes you have to hold those arguments, those nuanced conversations for the audiences that are prepared to receive them. Lawmakers are another one. You can have those nuanced conversations with your policymakers. You can sit down and have that conversation. And so I think it's a matter of directing the information to the right audience at the right time. So which is better, to have the conversation in the heat of the moment, when the battle's joined, or before the battle is joined, when you can anticipate that's coming? I don't know, it's just a question. That's a great question, David. <laughs> As you always like to say, you want to buy your umbrella when it's not raining, right? It's good advice. It's great advice. But, it's, but it is true. And I think more and more the clients that we are working with are not only recognizing the value of that, but really putting their energy into that. We'll get into a payer negotiation, right? And we get into the thick of things, right? Where it mm -hmm. really matters. The stakes are high. And we think, oh, boy, I wish we had this conversation six months ago or 12 months ago with this employer or this insurance broker or this elected official. They're starting to get to the place where they are having those conversations six, 12 months in advance. And I think preparation is key because you can talk about the bigger issues. You can paint the picture before you're having to explain something that's going to negatively impact the person you're talking to. So yeah, always a great idea. It's, I think it's, uh, it's an important point because of what we've been talking about. It's such a complex story and it has so much nuances and it involves money and, and monies that move in certain ways based on certain criteria. And it's not, a, it's not a conversation you can have once and feel like your message has been delivered. There has to be a real engagement, a real dialogue, a real, I don't know, connection where people can ask questions and not be clear and then not be clear and then become clear. And through that, not only can you get your message across, but you can, have, you can create a relationship where people can ask future questions. And once you've set that table... I don't know, you put in place how future conversations are going to be held. You set expectations about who you are and uh, your humility in the market. I think that's politically important right yeah. now. Agreed. Another thing that comes to mind is how do we communicate with news media about these mm. really tough 
topics. And there's a broad spectrum of news media. There's your local media, and then there's your national publications and trade pubs that are tackling these issues in a very nuanced way in a lot of cases. But I think when you're talking about media, it can be sometimes a mix of having to pare the message down to its most essential elements. Most element, of course, yeah. Yeah, and, but there are some places where you can get into nuance with certain reporters or certain editors, right? But I, So I think that some of the things to remember when you're thinking about communicating with news media about these issues that involve money is breaking it down into sort of bite-sized points that you want to make, and you may only be able to get one or two points in a story. So you can't have an entire thesis that you want to try to get across to a reporter because they don't have this, even if they listen to you, <laughs> they don't have the space to print it, right? right. So you got to break it down into bite-sized points. But then the other thing to do in a really planned media strategy thinks through these elements is you don't want to be the only voice saying whatever it is that you're saying, really right? To have yeah. third-party folks speaking for you, because in in a lot of very real ways, talking to the news media is talking to the public. And so you have to say things in a compelling way. You have to appeal to emotion, because that is how people make decisions, unfortunately and truly. You have to have stories to go to make your point. And so it really takes a, a comprehensive, multifaceted strategy when you're thinking about how do we deal with news media on these issues of money. And it's, it's the same approach, or it's, a, it's an identical approach for all the issues we've been discussing, yeah. right? Because the, there's one set of news media, there's one set of opinion leaders in the community. You have one group of colleagues and physicians that, that you're working all these issues against, right? To be in conversations allows you to deal with a variety of issues. So getting ahead of it actually will be, I don't, it's, inoculation's too strong a word, it's because there are troubles now and, and troubles ahead. But boy, it's good... Um, groundwork for everything that you're going to have to deal with. Yeah, it's opening the lines of communication with them just so that you've got faces and names and numbers and ways to reach these people. And just having avenues of communication is a significant win in this case. It is a significant win. And to the point of engaging in these conversations now, we certainly have worked, you and I both with health systems, who have been ready to do this as soon as it was needed, as soon as the, as soon as the issue came up and there was enough pain they actually felt like they needed to invest themselves in this work. And so if anyone is wondering whether these questions are going to come, whether the scrutiny is going to arrive, whether lawmakers are going to do this or media is, or is going to do that, I think they can rest comfortably knowing the questions are going to come. It is inevitable, right? Oh, for sure. Yeah, it's not a question of if, it's when. And how prepared will you be? And who will you have on your side when it does come? Thinking about the 100-year history, in some cases that these systems have, yeah, it can be an asset. And our clients are really, um, we see them slogging through these outdated, outmoded systems, and no one individual leader can break through that and transform the entire system, right? right? Transformation takes a long time, clearly. Do we wish it was faster? Absolutely. Do our clients wish it was faster? Definitely. And and I think one of the things that we have to do is just take that into account. These leaders that we're working with are working within a system that is just not a well-oiled machine, and it's not their fault. It's a system that they inherited, and they're trying to make it better. But it's a challenge. Mm -hmm. It is a challenge. And I think the brands can be extremely beneficial in this conversation to what these health systems need to accomplish. 
I think we have built, we, our health systems have built such sort of grace and goodwill through the brands that there's a receptivity to us as a branded organization versus those that are still trying to find their way, like to even demonstrate their value. If you know this is the brand organization, it comes with at least a modicum of trust that you can lean into and use. And those brands and the affinity for them are not built by a logo or by a hospital building. The affinity that exists for some of those brands are built by relationships and relationships that are handed down through generations. My mom delivered a baby at this hospital and then I delivered a baby at this hospital or this doctor took care of my grandpa and now they're taking care of me. And it's all about the experiences and the trust that is built through those experiences. And so I think one thing that I would say when thinking about brand equity and public trust and affinity is don't underestimate the value of the human faces that that actually mm. are the embodiment of your brand. It's the, the people, the brand. yeah, mm-hmm. the people who are providing the care. It's the physicians. It's the nurses. It's it's all that. It's EVS. It's all that. It's the it's the people that help you park, right? Yes. All of that matters, and that is your brand. So you're saying the brand has to be re-earned over and over with the experiences people have with you. Yeah, and if you want to nurture your brand, you got to nurture your people. And that's a whole separate Nurture the people. Podcast. Stay tuned for chapter two. I, but I completely agree. And, I, and I've worked with organizations who have had a crisis, like a, a terrible event in one of their, or there's a, an individual who did something wrong or a patient who had a bad outcome. And they wondered, did this affect our brand? Did mm-hmm. this affect our reputation? And we would do surveys based on that concern to answer questions they may have had. And Sometimes it did, but it was really rare because it was a unique event that was in contrast. It was very different from the united experience that people were having throughout the systems. And so it, it created this cushion, this momentum. The, the conversations we're having today, the issues we're talking about today, these are systemic organiz- issues. Right? They're, they're, being a, they're, they're touching patients throughout the market and politicians throughout the market and it has a different kind of impact, I think, on brands. And I think brands have some impact here, but are more vulnerable than some of the crises we've had with in the past. Yeah, agreed. I can't tell you what a joy this has been to spend some time with you here. This is great. Yeah, really fun. Oh, my fun. God. Yeah.